Now, I'd ask you this morning to bear with me. I have had a terrible cough all week long, so bear with me this morning if I cough a lot. I'm try I, I ate two, thank you very much, I ate two cough drops just before I got up here, so hopefully that will help. Romans chapter 3, as we continue to preach through this book of Romans, Paul has um, spent these two chapters we've been through explaining to us that all are under sin, that there are no excuses. Today we, uh, we have, you know, the saying, you know, you're all right and I'm all right, but that's just not true. We're not all right. We, uh, we have fallen short of God's standard, and the standard of God is perfection. And so Paul has indicted the entire human race that when Adam fell into sin, we fell with him. And that, uh, you know, in Romans 2, 1 through 3, 8, it primarily addresses the excuses that people have made for themselves. Now, I don't know about you, but I never make excuses for myself, and I never lie. <laughs> we all make excuses for our sin, and, and Paul deals with this. You know, one of the things that I love about the apostle is as, as he presents this argument, he anticipates the arguments in return. Paul was a brilliant man. And, and Paul had keen insight through the Spirit of God. And, and we will see that as we go along here. Uh, but in Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, it, it handles two final objections to the doctrine of sin. Uh, if you look at, look at verse 1 and 2 of chapter 3, it says, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. So the Jews boasted in their possession of the law, and in the fact that they were God's people demonstrated through circumcision. As we talked about last week, Paul uh, discusses how the Jew felt like their circumcision was an automatic ticket to salvation. And Paul said, no. And they said, well, Paul, we have the law. And he said, I know you do, but you don't keep it. He said, just because you know the law, just because you've been circumcised physically, uh, does, does not bring about salvation. Paul argued that circumcision was of the heart. So the Jew naturally had a question. Okay, Paul, you say that just because we were born a Jew doesn't mean we're actually a Jew. You say that just because we have the law doesn't mean we're saved. Just because we have been circumcised... Doesn't mean we're anybody special. And they said, well, then what's the point of being a Jew? How is a Jew separated from the Gentile? When God called Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees, and, and he called him out and said, I'm going to make a great nation of you, and I have chose you. And he changed his name to Abraham, and Isaac was born. And, and it says that through Isaac, your seed shall be called. And, and all of these things, Paul almost, almost makes it sound like everything we've learned in the Old Testament doesn't mean anything. But that's not what he's saying. And he's trying to, to correct their thinking here. Uh, they're saying, how is it any different? Is everything that, that is, we find in the Old Testament just a waste of time? And so they say, so what advantage has the Jew? And Paul answers and says, much in every way. 
He says, yes, you are special people to God. Yes, you are a chosen people of God. And listen, folks, you and I this morning as Christians, as, as non-Jewish believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul could just as easily be talking to us. We could say, well, if my baptism doesn't mean anything, if my going to church every Sunday, then what's the point? And Paul says, much in every way. We are the chosen of God. If Paul were writing today, he might mention church membership or baptism, but many place their confidence in these things. I have asked many, many people, tell me about your salvation experience. And one of the first things they will say is, well, I was baptized such and such a day. And, and, and that has nothing to do with being saved. Let me rephrase that. That has nothing to do with getting saved. It has a lot to do with being saved, okay? But nothing to do with getting saved. Or, or I, I had a, a young lady, you know, I pastored a church over in Farmersville, Texas. First church I ever pastored. The oldest church in Collin County. They still had the original building there with the horse hitch, hitch rails out front. And that's not the church we worshiped in. But I remember this lady was in there. <clears throat> she was 102 years old. And she told me, she said, I want you to know, I do not like your preaching. <laughs> yeah, to a young man of about 23 years old, that was not something I wanted to hear. <clears throat> she said, you're telling me that I'm not saved, that I've been a member of this church for 80 years. And she felt that that constituted her being saved. And she did not understand. And we need, and this is what Paul is pointing out here to the Jew, but he also points out to us that making a verbal confession of faith in Christ is no guarantee that you're saved. It's interesting, if you had gone up and seen this group of men standing together and walked up and said, Who are you? And they said, Well, we're the disciples, we're followers of Jesus. Maybe one stands up and says, hey, I'm Peter. Shakes your hand. Another one says, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm Matthew. And you're all followers of Christ. And they would say, yeah, yeah. What's your name? My name's Judas. And you're a follower. He said, oh, yeah, I love the Lord. But did he? See, just because we have a profession of faith doesn't mean that we have a possession of faith. And, and this is what Paul's trying to point out here. That, that Let me give you, let me jump to the end right quick, and then we'll go back and I'll tell you how I got to the end. Here's what Paul says. If you depend on anything, anything, anything other than Christ, then you're not saved. That's what he's saying. And that's because that's what they were doing. That's what the Jews were doing. And, and in a sense, that's what those who are Gentiles were doing the same things. So, uh, Many place their confidence in these things. But there is, however, an advantage to our being baptized. There is an advantage to being a church member. But we must not mistake that advantage to being that because we're baptized, because we're a church member, that means we're saved. As I have told many people, you know, the Bible does not teach baptismal regeneration. It does not. The Bible, however, does speak of believer's baptism. 
And what that means is that when you go down into that water, if you're not saved, you're not saved when you come back out. You're just wet. So we, we cannot place our, our faith in these things. And, and we, they are no guarantee that we have been saved. So Paul... There in verse 2, he is pointing out the tremendous advantage that the Jews had over the Philistines, over the Babylonians, over the Syrians. They had the Word of God. They had the Word of God. Throughout the Bible, throughout history, we see prophet after prophet after prophet coming to the children of Israel. The prophets didn't go to the Babylonians. The prophets didn't go to the Philistines. The prophets came with the Word of God to the believing Jews there who were God's people. There is no greater advantage to anyone than to be within earshot of the Word of God. I think that today we take for granted what we have right here. You agree with that? You know, I got to looking in my office at my home the other day. I had something like 27 Bibles. And I thought about the fact that there are people in Iran that don't have one. There are people in China that would give their life for one. And we take it advantage and don't take advantage of the fact that we have the very words of God. And this is what Paul's pointing out to these Jews. He's saying, look... You need to understand, yes, you are God's people. Yes, you are a Jew. Yes, you have been circumcised, but this is not what saves you. And then they said, well, then what good is it being a Jew? And he said, here's the thing. You have the word of God. Can I tell you, folks, that there is no people on the face of this planet that has the word of God, but the people of God. Now, I know plenty of people who are not saved that have a Bible. But you know something? Believe it or not. Having a Bible doesn't do anything for you. Having a Bible does not save you. There's no, there, there is no greater advantage for anyone than to be within earshot of the Word of God. Uh, Paul tells us, he'll tell us here in Romans, that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of Christ. So many churches today, they are moving away from serious exposition of the Word of God, yet the Word is where the power and the advantage lies. We must get into the Word of God. And we are greatly advantaged by having the Word of God. As a matter of fact, one of the things that we need to consider with the fact that all of us, we either have a physical Bible, we have it on our phones, we have it on our tablets, whatever we have on our computers. But we need to remember what Jesus said, to whom much is given, much is required. We will give an account. We have been blessed with this. So uh, the, there's no greater advantage that we can have, Paul says, uh, that much in every way to begin with to the Jews were entrust, entrusted with the oracles of God. You know how we got the word of God? It came through Israel. It came through the prophets and the apostles. Writing to us, it came through Moses. came through Abraham and Joseph and all of these. Uh, the, the word of God... Today, we are uh, indebted to the Jewish people that we have the word of God. And we need to remember that. And so Paul says that this is what it is that right here in verse 3. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though every one were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. If the majority of those 
who come to church, who get baptized, who read their Bible, are never truly saved, then shouldn't we just take all those things and cast them aside and say, you know what? It's no good. It's no point in this. If we're going to let people join the church, if we're going to let people get baptized, if we're going to give people a Bible, but they don't get saved, then what's the point of having all of these things? The Bible teaches believers baptism, but I want to tell you, not everyone who's been baptized has truly been saved. Did you know that? Not everyone who's a member of a church is truly, is truly saved. And, and we have, you know, I was arguing with someone this week, and, and, and I felt bad about this because of my own mama. <laughs> but we were arguing about this, and, 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 and she loves Donald Trump. She thinks that there is God, Jesus, Trump. And, and I am constantly telling her, you have got to get rid of this Christian nationalism. And she didn't know what that meant. And I said, it is one of the scourges of the church today. We have this idea that because we're American, we're Christians. Now, do you believe that? Good. We have this idea that everything that happens in this world, rather than looking at it from a biblical perspective, we look at it from an American perspective. Now, don't get me wrong. I love my country. I'm proud to be an American. I thank God every day that I'm born here. Don't get the idea that I don't love my country. What I'm saying is we cannot look at uh, the, the, the Bible from an American perspective. We look at it from a biblical perspective. And, and so Paul is trying to describe to these Jews that that's what they have to do. But many churches today are moving away from this and those who do not believe in no way diminish the value of the promise that God makes to those who do believe. So the Jews were saying, look, if this stuff doesn't do any good, then what's the point in doing it? <coughs> and God said, and, and Paul says, well, for one thing, God has called you. He has commanded you to do it. Did you know that being baptized is a command? That's not an option. If you are saved and you're not baptized, you're not being obedient to the Lord. Okay, and I'm going to make somebody mad. I know. I don't know who it is. If you're not baptized by being immersed, you're not baptized. Because immersion, baptism by immersion is a picture. It's a picture of our death and our burial and our resurrection. Our union with Christ. Okay, so, but the thing, Paul, point Paul's making, he's saying that just because we do these things and some don't believe doesn't mean that we do away with these things. Will the unbelief make the faithfulness of God of no value? Just because we ignore the word does not mean that the word becomes worthless. All right. So Paul here is making a distinction. He's saying you are looking at this from the wrong perspective. You're not looking at it from God's perspective. And we must learn to do that. Uh, he says there in verse uh, 4, Let God be true, though every man were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Those, those words, the last part of that verse is quoted from Psalm 51. You know what? Turn with me over to Psalm 51. <clears throat> this is a psalm of David. <clears throat> he has committed adultery with Bathsheba. He has murdered Uriah. God has sent the prophet Nathan to him. 
And you all remember the story. Nathan tells him the, 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 the parable about the man who had uh, one sheep and the man who had a whole lot. And the man who had a whole lot had a friend come. But instead of killing one of his, he went and killed one, the, the only sheep that other man had. And David was indignant at this. He, he leapt from his throne and he said, that man will be dead. He deserves to die. And I can just picture the prophet Nathan as he stands there and says, David, you are the man. And how David in an instant crumpled to his knees. And as a result, he, he wrote Psalm 51, probably the greatest psalm on repentance, the past, greatest passage on repentance we'll find in the Bible. But if you notice here, look in verse 1. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Now, listen to what he says here in verse 4. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, let's stop right there a minute. Now, think about what David said. Now, he says, God, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, don't you think Bathsheba got sinned against? Don't you think Uriah was sinned against? Don't you think that as the king, David had sinned against the entire nation of Israel? But yet he says, God, against you. And you only have I sinned because David understood that ultimately that's who we sin against. All right. Then notice what he says in the last part of verse four. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. He see David here in these first four verses. He has he has bared his soul before God. He has said, God, I know that I have sinned against you. I, I acknowledge my sin. I know it's there. My sin is ever before me. So, Lord. <clears throat> whatever you say, you are justified in saying. Whatever you do, you are justified in doing because you are blameless in your judgment because I have sinned. Now, go back to Romans chapter 3. There in verse 4, when Paul says that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged, he's quoting Psalm 51. He's quoting David, and what he's saying here is we need to acknowledge that, when, that whatever God says, whatever God does, God has every right to say and do. You agree with that? Yes, that is true, that God can do this. God always keeps his word, and God has every right to do whatever God chooses to do. Verse 5, he says, but... If our righteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unjust to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. To paraphrase this, Paul says, If my injustice makes God's justice shine, how can he be displeased with me? My sin makes God look good. This is the argument they're making with Paul. My depravity showcases God's mercy. That's why Paul says, I speak in a human way. Paul's saying, I'm speaking this as you would speak it because you don't know any better. He said, I'm telling you, this is how we look at it. Okay, God, if, if you know, in, in chapter 5 and verse 20, Paul is going to say where sin abounds, 
grace does much more abound. And then in chapter 6, Paul's going to say, so shall we sin? <laughs> Can we just go on sinning so that God's glory will shine? And he says, God forbid. And that's what he says here. He says, verse 6, by no means... For then how could God judge the world? He is showing the absurdity of human thinking and, and human reasoning. Uh, in verse 8, he says, And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, Their condemnation is just. In verse 8, Paul says their condemnation by God is just because they're thinking about this from their point of view. And they're saying, okay, uh, if, if grace abounds where sin abounds, then what I need to do is just sin even more. And that way I'll get more grace. If, if God's mercy if his mercy is more than my sin, so the more I sin, the more mercy there will be, and God will look good. And, and so we're all, everybody's happy. Isn't that how we think? That's how we think. And Paul knows this. These are no amount of human consensus can ever overturn the truth of God. False conclusions of others do not, re, uh, do not bring about the rejection of the truth. For instance, you look at the world and we live in. <clears throat> I was telling them in Sunday school this morning, you know, until um, I came here. And, and by the way, I thank you for this. Until I came here, you know, for, for my entire ministry, I've been Southern Baptist. And, and, I, and I'm glad to be out of way, away from them. But here's the thing. I was telling them about an article I read this week about a Southern Baptist church. That this today, this Sunday, was having a, a service called All In. All In was what they were calling it. You know what they were celebrating, right? They were celebrating Pride Month. And they wanted everyone to know that they're all welcome in their church. Now, can I tell you something? They're welcome in this church. They are. Now, they are not welcome to be a part of this church as long as they're in that lifestyle. But the point is, what happened that Paul is talking about here? We, we, we look at this and we make God into who we want him to be instead of who he truly is. And that's what the Jews were doing. They had turned God into who they wanted God to be. It was a God that, that, that looked at the Jew and said, Oh, look at my precious people. And looked at the Gentiles and said, Look at them dirty dogs. That's how they looked at it. And they needed to understand that God looked at them both and said, Look at them dirty dogs. Because they were all guilty. So sinners, uh, you know, we will always want a gospel that allows us to continue in our sin. Did you know that? Do you know that's the kind of gospel you want? You know, I mean, seriously, tell me, how many of you would not like to know that you could do anything you wanted to do, anywhere you wanted to do, any way you wanted to do, and have no consequences whatsoever? But that doesn't exist, does it? No, it does not. And so Paul is saying that, that the false conclusions of others do not justify the truth, and the, the, that we should get rid of the truth. In other words, just because you have a Christian that falls into sin doesn't mean that all, Christian, all Christians are bad. 
<clears throat> I, have a, I have an uncle who's a Jehovah's Witness, and he thinks that I am just like Benny Hinn. He thinks I'm just like Joel Osteen, because all preachers are the same. If you're in Christendom, then you're all the same. And, he, and, and so uh, he says, if you have this one that's bad, then you just get rid of all of them. And so Paul is saying, no, it does not work that way. Let me ask you, have you given up all your excuses and submitted to God's word as your ultimate authority? When the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, do you understand that means you? That that means me. All right, verses 10 through 18. <clears throat> Listen to what Paul says. Or verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written... None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their path are ruin and misery, and in the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So what Paul does in these verses, he gives an overview of what sin is in verses 10 through 18. And, and the text uh, is a chain of scriptures primarily from the Psalms. But note that it begins in verse 10 and 11 with no one seeks God. And it ends in verse 18 with there is no fear of God. No one seeks God and there's no fear of God. The core problem is rebellion against God. This goes all the way back to what he said in chapter 1. He said, you're without excuse for although they knew God, they did not acknowledge him. They did not honor him as God. They knew who he was and they said, we don't care. They knew what he said and they said, we don't care. We're going to do our own thing. And Paul is trying to explain to these Jews that they do the same thing. That the uh, theological denial always leads to moral errors. This is why it's so very important that you know and you study and you learn Christian doctrine. Because what you believe determines how you live. And if we don't know the truth of what God teaches in the Bible. Now, as your pastor, I try on Sunday nights, Wednesday nights, and on Sunday mornings to teach Christian doctrine, to teach true biblical teaching so that we can get it ingrained in us. Because <clears throat> theological error, uh, denial always leads to moral errors. Here we see in verses uh, 18, 18, 10 through 18, we see the doctrine of total depravity. That sin has penetrated every faculty of our beings. The most eloquent prayer I may ever pray is tainted with sin. The most wonderful sermon I may ever preach is tainted with sin. The most beautiful song my wife ever sang will be tainted with sin. 
We cannot help this because that's where we are. Uh, we are unable and we are unwilling to seek God until he first seeks us. This is why the doctrine of election is so important. <clears throat> Look at verse 13 and 14. Paul says, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. And here Paul talks about the, the, the sins of our speech, the sins of what we say. It deals with wicked speech. And in verse 18, it says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Reverence for God restrains sin. A proper view of God leads believers to please him, to want to please him. We, we were talking about that in Sunday school this morning in our study on worship. In order to truly worship God, as he told the woman at the well in spirit and in truth, we have to know who he is. We cannot let him be a God that we want him to be. We cannot make him out to be a God in our own image. You know, and, and that's what we've done. You know, as somebody one time said, said, God made man in his own image and man returned the favor. And we've done that. But, but, but Paul is saying you cannot do this. We must understand who God is in order to truly worship him. And, and in order to truly know that we must come before him. One of the greatest passages in the Bible. One of my favorites is Isaiah chapter 6. It's one of the most beautiful passages. Isaiah stands before God. He sees the throne and he sees this magnificent, beautiful vision of heaven. He hears the, 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 the cherubim as they're, they're with their six wings and how they're holy, 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 holy. They say it over and over and over. By the way, they're not saying it to God. It says they're saying it to each other. That ought to tell us something, by the way. But here's Isaiah, and he's standing there, and he sees this magnificent view, and he is just in awe. And he says, oh, what a beautiful sight. Oh, I cannot believe that I'm here. No, that's not what he does. He falls on his face and says, woe is me. Because I'm a wretched sinner. Do you know what showed him that? Do you know how he knew he was a wretched sinner? He had a right view of God. And therefore, he had a right view of himself. And this is what Paul's getting to the Jews about. And to the Gentiles, he's saying, look, you don't have a right view of yourself because you don't have a right view of God. And when we get a right view of God, then everything comes together. And this is why he says there's no fear of God. Do you think Isaiah feared God? Yes, he did. But listen, we need to understand that, that, that the word fear in relation to God is used in two ways. To those who are unregenerate, it's used in the sense that they must be afraid of him, and they better be. But to the believer, it means that we reverence him. We understand who he is.
and we come before him and understand that, God, I don't deserve to be here. He says uh, there is no fear of God before them, but reverence for God. When we truly know who God is and we fear him in that way, it restrains sin. A proper view of God always leads to believers to, to worship God and to want to please him in every way. Look at verse 19 and 20. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Paul says, we know this signals that he wants his readers to accept his conclusion. Now, the word law here, in the way it's used, it refers to God's instruction as a whole. In other words, the whole Bible is what it's talking about. And so uh, Paul says, we know that what the, whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. Whether one has scripture or the light of nature, everyone knows enough, Paul says, to be accountable. I think I've told you this story before about years ago I was listening to a Christian radio show and this guy I was listening to he he had this missionary on there he was talking to him. And the missionary was from some deep jungles of Africa or South America, somewhere I can't remember. But anyway, very remote, out of the way and you know not much about civilization. And in his village their village worshipped little wooden idols. Okay? And his father was the one in the, in the village who would make and sell the wooden idols to the people to worship. And he said he was out with his father one day and they were cutting down trees to get the wood to make the little wooden idols. And the man says that he stopped... I think he was about 17, 18 years old. He said, I stopped and I, he said, a thought just appeared to me, occurred to me that I had never considered in my life. I know who makes the little idol, but who made the tree? And he said within two weeks, some Christian missionaries came into their village preaching the gospel. But he said the point was, he said, where Paul says that creation leaves us without excuse. And that's what this man saw. And so here, you know, Paul says every mouth is stopped or silenced. To be silenced is to recognize our guilt. <coughs> Excuse me. When Nathan pointed his finger and said, David, you are the man. David was quiet. David didn't say anything else. His guilt overwhelmed him. And this is what Paul is saying. He's saying, when you understand what I'm saying here, and you look at what has happened, who God is and who you are, then you will be silenced. Humans can become blind to almost any sin. Look at our culture. Look what's going on. Not just in our culture. Look at the church. 
the state of the church in our day, we can become, uh, we can willfully become blind to almost any sin. Do we compare our words and our deeds to God's standard and repent whenever we fall short? What we have a tendency to do was the same thing that Paul's readers were doing. I have a tendency to look at myself and say, well, you know, at least I'm not like Tim. You know what I mean? Don't we do that? <clears throat> Look, I know that, that this may be a little sin, but you know, at least I'm not as bad as so-and-so. You know, you could very easily say, and you would be correct, well, at least I'm not as bad as Bobby Baker. But can I tell you something, folks? Tim is not the standard I'll be judged by. I am not the standard you'll be judged by. Paul was saying to the Jews, you don't understand. The Gentiles are not the standard you will be judged by. Jesus is the standard. How many of you here measure up? Nobody? Really? So you're all kind of getting it. That all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That every mouth is stopped. Romans 3.20 brings Paul's diagnosis to a close even as it prepares us for the gospel that he's about to get into. The first response to awareness of sin is always going to be repentance. Repentance. Verse 21 and 22, Paul says, but now we must look outside of ourselves and we must look to Christ. And this is where he's leading them. But do you understand that's where we have to get. We have to we have to have a proper view of who we are and where we are. Remember Adam and Eve in the garden? You know, where are you? What have you done? God knew, but he needed to make sure Adam and Eve knew. And Paul is doing the same thing here. Our only hope of righteousness is not in our works, but in Christ's work of redeeming sinners at the cost of his own precious blood. Verse 24, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now, here's what Paul's telling these believing Jews. Remember, they boasted about having the law. And he says, yeah, you have it, but you don't know what it says, because if you did, you'd know where you are and what you've done. Because by the law comes the knowledge of sin. Paul's going to say this again in chapter 7 when he says, I would not have known covetousness had the law not said you should not covet. Because the law exposes us. The law exposes who we are. And, and so their boast in having the law, their boast in being circumcised. And Paul said, that's great. You are blessed because of this. But you need to understand that if you truly understood that, you'd know that you are no better than the Gentiles. That we all fall under the condemnation of God outside of Christ. <clears throat> they needed to set aside their self-righteousness. They needed to set aside their own works. 
because he says, for by works of the law, no human being, no, none, will be justified in his sight. You know why that is, right? We can't do it. We cannot do it. I always am amazed by the fact that Moses stood on Mount Moriah. I'm sorry, not Mount Moriah. But Moses stood on the mountain. And the very finger of God was writing out the Ten Commandments. The very first one. You shall have no other gods before me. And do you know what the people were doing at the same time? Worshipping a golden calf. Huh? Yeah, and they named him Jehovah. That's what they named the calf. Aaron said, hey, here is your God that brought you out of Egypt. While God is writing the Ten Commandments. I find it interesting because nothing's changed. Because let me tell you what Aaron did. When Moses confronted Aaron, you know what Aaron said? He said, look, Moses, all I know is we threw the gold in the fire and out came a golden calf. That's what he said. And don't we do the same thing? We try to excuse our sin in the same way. And so Paul says, look, you will not be justified by keeping the law for the very fact that you cannot keep the law. The law was not given for us to keep. The God law was given to show us we can't do it. The law was given to point us to Christ. Later, Paul will refer to the law as our schoolmaster or our tutor, whatever you want to call it. So I want to ask you, have you set aside your self-righteousness? Have you received and rested upon Christ as your only righteousness before God? This is where Paul's leading these people. He's about to get into this about the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul has spent two and a half chapters telling us what terrible people we are. Telling us what sinners we are. Telling us how we don't measure up. Telling us how we're hypocrites. Telling us how we're sinners. And I want to tell you, anytime you attempt to proclaim the gospel with anyone, you must do it exactly the way Paul did. How many of you know who Ray Comfort is? I love to watch Ray Comfort. Because that's what he does. He presents them. He makes sure. Do you know you're a sinner? Do you realize you deserve the judgment of God? But let me tell you what God has done. Because you see, you're not going to receive the good news until you know the bad news. Do you know the bad news? Do you know that outside of Christ that we are, are, are under the just condemnation of God? That we are under the righteous wrath of God. That we can never measure up. That we can never please God. Outside of Jesus. <clears throat> Everything. You know one of the most significant things I ever discovered as a believer. And, and, and fortunately I discovered this very early in my Christian life. Is that every single chapter of the Bible 
is about Jesus. From Genesis to Revelation, everything is about Jesus. Everything is pointing us to him. And that's what Paul's trying to do here. That's what I've been trying to do to point us to Christ. Don't trust your church membership. Don't trust your baptism. Don't trust your own goodness. Don't trust your self-righteousness. You can memorize the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and that's not going to save you. It's only when we place our faith and trust in Christ and we come, we repent of our sin and acknowledge God be merciful to me, a sinner. And trust in the finished work of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning, Father, for the... We thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that you have shown us who we really are. Father, help us to see you as you really are. Father, we know that we fall short. And I pray that if there's one listening that has never received the Lord Jesus Christ, they've never believed in him, Father, that, Lord, you might call them this morning if they are yours. And, Father, that they might believe and they might be saved. Father, help us to remember that without Christ we are nothing, we have nothing, we can do nothing. That everything points to him. And, Father, that in believing on him we might be obedient to your word and to your law. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand to page 